Am I on? I'm on. Awesome. Hey, good morning. If uh, we've not met, I'm Brian McCoy, and I am one of the pastors here. And uh, this morning, of all mornings, I wish I had some grandkids to introduce or <laughs> a little baby to hold, <laughs> a blanket maybe, I don't know. <clears throat> hey, let's, uh, it's an odd morning, all right? Maybe not for you, but for me. And um, uh, let me tell you, as, as odd, maybe out of the ordinary that it might be for us, there's, there are going to be some things that are always going to remain the same at Foothills Baptist Church regardless. We're a church that believes in the authority of scriptures, right? And so on Sunday mornings when you come into this room, together we're going to sing, we're going to worship, we're going to pray, and we're going to gather around God's word. And so let's open the Bible together to Acts chapter 3. We finished Acts chapter 2 last week with Dennis, and we're just moving on. Dennis asked me, he said, are you going to preach a message, you know, about the church and to the church about what you want to do? I said, no, I'm preaching on Acts chapter 3 because that's what's up next. And that's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to try to do and, uh, as, as time goes on, right? Acts chapter 3, it's on page 911. Interestingly enough, uh, this week in the Pew Bible, we are studying through the book of Acts, right? And uh, the book of Acts is the first 30 years of history of the New Testament church. And so as we move through this week by week, we're seeing what God was doing in those very early believers, uh, this week, I decided to do something a little odd. Now, I'm, I'm typically an introverted person. I uh, find comfort in being alone <laughs> and, uh, or being with a few people. And in a crowd of people, it's okay, but uh, I'm, I'm kind of introverted. But as I go about my day and I go out around uh, during the week, I don't have any problem striking up conversations with random strangers. And so I tried that a couple of times this week, and I just asked people this question, who do you think Jesus is? Now, that's a real icebreaker, and uh, <clears throat> if you're sitting at Starbucks waiting for a tea or whatever, and you ask somebody, hey, I'm just curious, and I tell them right up front, I say, I'm a pastor in one of the churches around here, I'm just curious, have you ever thought about Jesus? Who do you think Jesus is? And I got three or four different responses in total. Uh, some people said, well, I'm not sure. That's honest enough. Some people said, well, he's the Savior. Had a long conversation about that. A fellow believer in Christ uh, had uh, one person say he's the Son of God. Uh, those, were kind of, those were kind of it. This passage that we're looking into today is a passage that's really all about Jesus. It begins with a miracle. It begins with Peter and John, two of Jesus' apostles. But Peter seizes the moment and preaches a sermon and he turns everyone's attention to where it should be, and that is on Jesus. It's about Jesus' identity. And when we realize who he is, what difference that should make in our lives and how we ought to respond to him. So as we look into the text, let's look at the miracle as it comes up to us, right? Right there in chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Remember, at the end of chapter 2, we're seeing the whole church and the Spirit has come, and, and we're kind of seeing a big wide-angle view. And now it's as if, if this were a film, now the filmmaker comes in tight and we see these two guys. Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, around three in the afternoon. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. The Beautiful Gate was about 75 feet high, 60 feet wide, overlaying Corinthian bronze. It was impressive. It was extravagant in contrast to a poor lame man laid at the foot of that gate every day. 
Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked them to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them, of course. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold. And maybe in a moment, the the man is thinking, great. But what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the hand, the right hand, and he raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. I believe what you see here is very similar to what happened when Jesus went into Jairus' daughter and he said, child, arise, and he took her by the hand and he lifted her up. Peter had seen Jesus do just that. And so this is Peter right there saying to this man, I don't have silver or gold. I can't do this on my own. Money can never pay for it. But in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And in a moment, God did what man had been unable to do for 40 years. It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing miracle, right? And uh, everybody stops. It's like a car accident of sorts on the highway. Everyone slows down. Everyone takes notice. This is a guy that people had walked past for decades. And now he's on his feet. No wonder everyone took, took notice. No wonder everyone is leaning in. And this rest of this passage as it falls out is Peter explaining what just happened. The headline is in verse 13, I think. Peter says, God has glorified Jesus. That's the headline of the whole passage. And the explanation, Peter is saying, for this man's healing is not that we are particularly pious or good. It's not anything to do with us. It has everything to do with Jesus. This miracle is an explanation of what we saw last week when Dennis was preaching and he went through chapter 2 and verse 43 when it tells us that there were signs and wonders being done by the hands of the apostles. And this is one of those moments. And what's important about all of those miracles is this, not that they were ends in themselves, although God is certainly compassionate and kind and gracious in granting healing, but the point of all those miracles was to point people to Jesus. We know that because Peter did not say, well, This man has been healed, and so you too can be healed. Line up, and let's have a healing line. Peter didn't say that. Peter said, this man's been healed so that you can learn something about Jesus. And then he goes on from there. You remember when we used to read signs to navigate a city? Now we use an app. And uh, when you used to read signs, you you didn't drive through a city and say, man, what a cool-looking sign. I love that color. I love that size. No, it's not about the sign. It's about where the sign is telling you to go. It's about the sign pointing you in the right direction. The sign says, you're here. And this lame man's healing is a sign that this is who Jesus is, if you want to know about who he is. Now, parenthetically, we believe God heals, don't we? The answer is yes, we do. We believe God still heals today. But we also believe that the apostolic miracles that you see in the book of Acts, they're unique in nature, in number. It was for a period of time in history. I'm not saying that God doesn't miraculously heal now. He does. But it's not typically at the same rate and in the same kinds of ways as we see here in the book of Acts. But whether you've been healed through some maybe ordinary means, and I don't mean to demean what any of our physicians in the the congregation do, but through some ordinary means, you've gone to the doctor and they've prescribed an antibiotic or some other prescription, or they've given you a treatment, or you've underwent surgery, and over some time, you've been healed. Or perhaps 
in a moment, God did a miracle and you were healed. Either way, Jesus deserves the glory for your healing. Let's look at the message though. Because even as miraculous as this healing was, it was a precursor to the message. This man was healed so you can learn something about Jesus. And so Peter points them to Jesus and he actually goes deeper. He points them to their attitude, to their posture toward Jesus, what they thought about Jesus. He doesn't start by saying, man, haven't we, haven't we just witnessed a wonderful thing that's occurred here? How does he start? You people did something really terrible a few weeks ago. That's where he begins. It's not the way you want to necessarily start a sermon, but that's where Peter began. Look at verse 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. God glorified Jesus, but these people dishonored him. You handed him over to be killed. You disowned him before Pilate. You traded the holy and righteous one for a murderer. You killed the author of life. You betrayed Jesus. You disowned Jesus. You wanted nothing to do with Jesus. And they were so wrong about who Jesus was. You see what he says about Jesus. He says, Jesus is God's servant. He's taking them all the way back to remind them of what Isaiah said, that God would send his servant and his servant would save his people. And he was telling them, Jesus fulfilled that prophecy. He is God's servant. And he goes on to tell them that Jesus is God's holy and righteous one. What does that mean? If you go back to Acts chapter 2, you'll be reminded of what God said about David, that he was his chosen king. But God had chosen another king to sit on David's throne, one that would rule forever, because that king would be, unlike David, holy and righteous in every way. Peter is telling them, you rebelled against the one that God sent to rule over you with a good and gracious rule, a righteous rule, a holy rule. And ironically, he said, you killed the author of life, the one who created you, the one who gave you breath, the one who made you and designed you and knows you in every way. You had him crucified, but God proved you wrong by raising Jesus from the dead. And this healing, this miracle is just another piece of evidence to all of you about who Jesus truly is, the servant of God, the holy and righteous one from God, the very author of life. And how was this healing done? Look at verse 16. He's speaking about Jesus and he says, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Uh, what does all that mean? It wasn't this man's faith. Beloved, let me tell you to guard your own heart and your mind. Pay attention to Christian television and radio that you're listening to and watching because it's not all good. And just because somebody reads to you from the Bible doesn't mean they're right. There are a lot of people who get beyond the guardrails and get out into the weeds when they're teaching and they're preaching. And they say things that just simply are not backed up by the preponderance of Scripture. That man was not healed because he had great faith in order to be healed. And when you're healed, it's got nothing to do with that. It's the object of your faith that matters. You can have faith like the grain of a mustard seed. Jesus is the one who brings healing. If your faith is in the money that you give, if your faith is in the healer that you're going to, then it's a misplaced faith. 
misguided and misdirected. It wasn't his faith. In fact, I don't know that he had any faith to be healed. Frankly, he was asking for money, not for healing. And Peter and John, think about it, they had gone to the temple that day to do what? To pray. That's what they were there for. They hadn't gone with a healing on their agenda. They didn't think, well, let's go up to the temple and see if we can heal someone. They went to the temple at the time of prayer because it was a place of prayer for them. This is what took place. The risen Christ, the ascended Christ, moved in his apostles, Peter and John, by his spirit and said, look at that man and speak to that man. I'm going to heal him. And Peter acted in obedience to the faith that God gave him in the moment. It was the faith that was through Jesus into Peter's life that Peter acted on. And that's how this man was healed. And it was in Jesus' name, right? A person's name comes to stand over time for their character, for their nature, for who they are, what they're like. And this man was healed in the name of Jesus by the power and the authority of who Jesus is. You know, we don't, we don't betray Jesus the way these people did. We don't trade him for a murderer the way they did. He's not standing before us the way he was with them in history, in time. But we don't honor Jesus the way he deserves to be honored. Many of the people that I spoke with simply ignore Jesus, or they haven't thought much about Jesus. They don't know whether to believe in him or not, or they simply have decided not to believe in him or take him seriously. And so we, like those people, treat him sinfully. He's worthy of glory and honor. He is the author of life. He's given us life. We deserve, we ought to submit our lives to him. He's worthy of our worship, but we don't do that and we live our lives in sin, just like they did. And so what does Peter do? He points out their sin, but more than that, he talks to them about who Jesus is and how they ought to respond to him. And when he does that, he gives them hope. And I pray that that's what happens as we move through the rest of the message, as we look at what Peter has to say specifically. Four points about who Jesus is that you see in this text and how we ought to respond to him. First, Jesus is the center of all of God's plans. He's the center of all of God's plans. And God has planned to save a people for himself. That's the story of the Bible. And he's doing that through Jesus. And Peter goes back to the prophets, not once or twice, but three times to anchor Jesus in his story. Look at verses 17 and 18 as we continue through it. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers also. But what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. You didn't understand the sinful nature of what you were doing. You acted in ignorance. Your rulers did the same kinds of things. But God knew exactly what he was doing, and he prophesied it. He predicted it long ago. If you go all the way back to the beginning of your Bible, to Genesis chapter 3, right after Genesis chapter 2, when sin enters the world, God speaks and says, I'm going to send one who will deliver you from the penalty of sin, which is death. And from that point forward, God is beginning to fulfill his plan to save a people for himself. In verse 21, if you look down, it says, it's talking about Christ, whom heaven must receive, and it has, he's ascended now, right? Heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. We're gonna come back to that, but again, the story of Jesus is anchored in the prophets of the Old Testament. In verse 24, look at, look at what it says there. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel 
And those who came after him also proclaimed these days. What God does in the world through Jesus is what God has promised to do from the very beginning. Jesus is at the center of all of God's plans. You cannot unhitch, it's a popular phrase these days, you cannot unhitch the New Testament from the Old Testament. The story of Jesus begins for us in Genesis chapter 1, if you will. It becomes clearer in Genesis chapter 3, and we see it throughout the rest of the Bible. The Bible, beloved, tells one story. From Genesis through Revelation, there is a line that's drawn through the Bible. And all of the sin and all of the brokenness of humanity cannot thwart what God means to do. And in the book of Acts in particular, we see God unleashing the gospel into the world through his people by his spirit. And that's what this miracle's proclaiming to us. It's about Jesus and who he is and what he's done. Now, all of this matters to Peter's listeners, the people who have gathered, because he's in the temple, remember. And they're on this large porch called Solomon's Colonnade, and they're all Jews. And look at what Peter says to them in verse 25. He says, you are the sons of the prophets. Some of your Bibles say you are the heirs of the prophets. And of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Peter is saying, this is history, and it's your story. You are the sons of the prophets as Jews. You're you're the heirs of the prophets and the covenant that God made with your fathers. God kept his promises. You're supposed to be part of this story. And as heirs of the promises, you should have known better. You should have seen Jesus for who he is. And doesn't it make sense now that you see on the other side of his resurrection and his ascension, doesn't it make sense now in this healing that you truly respond to who Jesus is as the son of God? It makes perfect sense. Look in verses 22 and 23. He just continues to anchor it in the Old Testament. He says, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed or cut off from the people. Despite what other religions may say, there are no prophets that follow Jesus. Jesus is the final prophet of God. He is the fulfillment of the prophetic line. All of the prophets spoke for God, on behalf of God. They spoke everything that God told them to say. Jesus, John tells us, the apostle in chapter one of his gospel, is the word of God, the living word of God. When Jesus speaks, God is speaking directly to us through the person of his son. He's the final prophet, and the Jews should have done what Moses told them. You should have listened to Jesus. He was telling you what God wanted you to know, and you should have obeyed him. And if you do obey him, you can truly be one of God's people. But if you do not listen to Jesus, you'll be cut off from God's people forever. And the dissonance that that would create in their minds, I don't think most of us in the room can really get a grip on it. They believed that they were part of God's people because ethnically they were who they were. They had a certain set of last names, family names. They came from certain tribes and peoples. They believed that they were part of the people of God by their ethnicity. And Peter is driving at something far deeper, saying that what matters is not your ethnicity, but your response to the one that God has sent, Jesus. And if you do not listen to him, you'll be cut off from the people of God forever. But if you listen, you'll become one of God's people. God's plan has always been to save a people for himself. What about you and me? 
Most of us in here are not Jews by birth. We're not of that ancestry or lineage. Is it possible for us to be saved, to become part of God's people? The answer is yes, but only through Jesus. And only if we listen to him. He's God's final prophet. He's telling us the truth. And he is Abraham's offspring. Just as it's predicted, Abraham's offspring is Jesus. All the families of the earth are to be blessed in him. And so God has had a design, a purpose, a plan from the very beginning to save people from every tribe, tongue, nation on earth. He began with a people. He began with a man, Abraham, who had many offspring, but one in particular who would come to save the world. And if we will listen to him, if we will listen to Jesus, then we can truly become part of God's people. And then these prophets become our prophets. Jesus is at the center of God's plan. That's who he is. Jesus is the one who wipes away our sins. In verses 18 and 19, look at what he says. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. When the Messiah would come, he would suffer. Not for his own sins, but for the sins of the people that he would save. He would stand in for those who could not stand for themselves and we should repent of our sins. We should turn away from the life that we live, from the thoughts that we think and trust in him so that our sins could be blotted out, so that they could be forgiven. It sounds a lot like the end of Peter's sermon in Acts chapter two when he said, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Here's a difficult part of the message. What are some of the sins for which you need to be forgiven? What are some of the sins for which you need to be forgiven? Lying. Lust. Anger. Discontentment. Grumbling. Greed. Bitterness. Impatience. We could just keep making the list longer and longer. There are a lot of things that I could check on that list. There are things that you could check on that list. The Bible tells us that all of us have sinned and we've fallen short of God's glory. What about irritability or envy? All of these things, pride. If I could write those things on a whiteboard with a marker, if I picked up my eraser, I could erase them and they'd be wiped out. They'd be gone without a trace. That's the picture of this language when it says that Jesus will blot out your sins. He'll wipe them away. He'll forgive them. They'll be gone without a trace in the same way that God will wipe every tear from our eyes. It's the same word used in Revelation. That's how good forgiveness is. I wonder, have you ever, uh, in an argument with your spouse or with a friend, have you ever gone back in history and exhumed something that you buried back there for forgiveness, right? Have you ever gone back and picked up something and held it against them? You know you're not winning the argument. The, the day is not going in your favor and you, you reach back and you bring something up and you throw that in their face. That's not forgiveness. God says that when you repent of your sins, he blots them out, he wipes them away, he forgives them and he'll never hold them against you again. And why is that? because those sins have been paid for. He held them against Jesus. That's what the cross is about. 
That's that song that we just sang over and over. We sang those kinds of truths in that text. He held them all against Jesus, and Jesus completely paid for your sins and mine on the cross. But do you get that? Do we get that? Has it really sunk down into our hearts and into our everyday experience? Do you walk through life and say, I know God has forgiven my sins, but I feel so guilty for what I did. And you remember what went on a week ago or three years ago or 30 years ago. And it just feels like your sins are hanging over your head and you're worried. One of these days, I'm, I, God is gonna hold, hold that against me. One of these days, I'm gonna pay for that. You should feel guilty for sin. Sin is an offense against a holy God who's righteous. And guilt is really God's gracious gift to us that we feel it and experience it. It's the warning light that says something needs to change. And he gives us the gospel and shows us how. But listen, if you just continue to live under a cloud of guilt, when your sins have been forgiven, when he's blotted them out, they're no longer on the board, then they're paid for, then you're not really understanding, you're not really apprehending what forgiveness is. And when you feel that guilt and that concern over forgiven sin, there is an uncertainty that just starts to creep into your relationship with Jesus. And it'll just upend your whole spiritual life. You'll wring your hands every day of your life. You'll, you'll be trying really hard to make up for something that you did back there in the past. There was no making up for it from the beginning. There's nothing that you and I can do on this side of the cross to make up for it. Jesus has paid for it all. And when you try really hard to make something up, make up for something, or you're just not really experiencing the joy and the peace that comes when you really apprehend that God has forgiven you, forgiveness brings that into our lives. Or you, maybe you turn into the kind of the morality monster and you think, well, you know, I messed up back then and I know God's forgiven me, but I can never mess up again and I can never do wrong again. I have to really pay attention to my life. And you should. But that's not how we live the Christian life, not under that kind of sense of guiltiness. We've been forgiven. When you repent of your sins, Jesus is the one who blots them out. He wipes them away. And they'll never be held against you again. They have been completely paid for by Jesus. Jesus is the one who brings new spiritual life to us. L look on to the next verse, verse 20. When you repent and you turn to God and he wipes away your sins, he blots them out. Look at what happens. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Times of refreshing that come from the presence of the Lord. Uh, just what are those times of refreshing? What does this mean? Uh, I read a, a bucket load of commentaries this week, and they all say something a little different from one another. And that's never very helpful. <laughs> But as I just continued to look at the passage and read through it, typically the answer is in here and not in one of those books, by the way. Uh, buy all the commentaries you'd like, but the answers are usually right here, and you just need to pray and ask God to help you. And you can check me on this, maybe correct me on this, but this is where I land. These times of refreshing, as I read through that scripture and I looked back to where it came from, Acts chapter 2, this is the conclusion I came to. Times of refreshing that come from the presence of the Lord is the gift of the Holy Spirit. When you turn and you 
repent of your sins and God wipes them away, what does Jesus do? He brings times of refreshment. He sends the spirit into your life and he gives you new spiritual life. It is the indwelling, empowering presence of the spirit in our lives as believers. In Acts chapter two, think about this. Peter preached what? He said, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And here he says, repent and turn to God and your sins will be blotted out and times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord. I just, I'm connecting those dots. Maybe I'm all wet. But I know this for sure. Jesus does bring us new spiritual life and it comes in the person and work of the Holy Spirit inside of all of us. And I think that's exactly what he's saying because when the Spirit comes, moment by moment and day by day as we walk with Jesus, we can walk in these times of refreshing that come from the presence of the Lord. It's the Spirit that empowers us to be his witnesses to people near and far. It's the Spirit that empowers us to serve Christ in this world, in this time. It's the Holy Spirit that enables us to fight temptation and sin. It's the Spirit that brings us comfort and peace and gives us direction in our lives. It's the Spirit that seals us and marks us out as the children of God for the day of redemption. Times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord, the very presence of God in the Spirit living in us. Jesus brings us new spiritual life and Jesus is the one who will fix the world. I love this part of the text. Verses 19 all the way down through 21, they, they come together really as a unit. But in verse 21, he's talking about Jesus, whom heaven must receive, right? Until that time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Last week, a hurricane devastated the Bahamas. Robert and Yemi Bosfield have family members and friends who live in the Bahamas. We pray for the people of the Bahamas and, and thank the Lord that uh, family and friends are well and they're in each other's homes and in Nassau and they were spared. So we're grateful to God for that. But those kinds of incidents are examples to us that the world, as the Apostle Paul would say, is in bondage to decay. The world is not as it was meant to be. The world is in trouble. And through the prophets, God promised that he would restore the world, that he would restore all things, and that he would do it through Jesus when Christ returns. This miracle is a message about the salvation that God wants to bring to our souls, but it is also about the restoration of all things through Christ. It shows us that God is no happier with the condition of the world as it is than you or me. God did not create the world with pain or blindness. He didn't create the world with disease and death or lameness. All of that came into the world through the corruption of sin. This miracle points us to a world as God intended it to be, a world that he will remake it to be forever. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. We, we know that in Revelation but God promised it far before he ever said it through the apostle John in Revelation. In Isaiah, this is what God said. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. Be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. God is going to do this, and Jesus is the one who will bring it about at his coming. When this lame man is healed in Jesus' name, 
and goes walking and leaping and praising God through that temple, attracting all that attention, giving Peter this opportunity to preach this message. It is a glimpse in time of the kingdom of God that's come, the kingdom of God that is already, but not yet. And so we see these glimpses of God at work in powerful ways, and we see it here in the healing of this man. But God is going to do something that will sweep across the world and restore all things one day when Christ comes. Isaiah said this as well, then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. You know, sometimes, sometimes we present the gospel and we tell people, man, just turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. He'll fix everything in your life. Whatever you're struggling with, Jesus, Jesus will fix it. He'll, he'll make it right. And it's absolutely the truth that Jesus will make things right. And Jesus will restore all of your brokenness. But there are three things that you ought to keep in mind. Anytime you share the gospel with someone, anytime you make promises and you refer people to the promises of God, keep these things in mind. Some things change instantly when you become a Christian. Some things change instantly when you become a Christian. You go from death to life. Uh, Trevor read it earlier today. Ephesians chapter two, we are dead in our trespasses and sins, separated from God, alienated and hostile in our minds toward God. We're dead in our sins, but what does God do? In his love, in his kindness, in his graciousness, by his mercy, he makes us alive together with Christ. He raises us up together with Christ and seats us in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. We go from death to life. We go from being alienated from God, hostile towards God, separated from God, and headed that way forever to being reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Some things happen instantly when you become a Christian. Some things change gradually when you become a Christian. As you read the word, as you apply it, as you pray, as you fellowship with other believers and share your heart with one another, as you confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, as you depend on the presence of the Spirit and the work of the Spirit in your life day by day, gradually, more and more, we become like Jesus. How many times have we heard that Christians are not perfect, right? We, we know that we're not perfect. We can't be hypocritical about where we've come from or the stage of life where we're at. We don't always behave well. We don't always think rightly. Our feelings betray us. We need Jesus today just as much as we did on that moment when we confessed him as Savior. Some things change gradually. And beloved, some things won't change ultimately until Jesus comes again. And so we wait in hope for that day. And hopefully we wait in patient hope for that day. Who is Jesus? He is the center of God's saving plan for the world. And he will blot out your sins and forgive them if you will repent of your sins and trust in him fully in his death, burial, and resurrection that he has done all that needed to be due for salvation to be applied to you and that he brings you new spiritual life through the presence of his spirit and that he is the one who will come again and restore all things as they were intended to be. He'll make all things new. If you're not a believer this morning, and you came to church perhaps at the invitation of someone, I want to encourage you to consider seriously who is Jesus. And just move beyond ignoring him. 
And perhaps today God is speaking to you and convicting you of sin. And this is the moment in which you will say, I'm going to surrender myself to Jesus. I do believe that he is the servant of God, the holy and righteous one, and I'm not. And I confess that I've sinned, and I believe that he is the very son of God. He is the author of life, and I'm going to submit myself to him fully. I want to do that. I challenge you to do that, to consider Jesus and to trust in him. He alone is the one who can blot out your sins and give you a new spiritual life, and every human being on the planet needs that. If you are a believer, as a church, we ought to lean in and pay attention to this example of Peter and John. They likely walked past this man many times because the early church was still in transition. They, they didn't go to the temple to make a sacrifice. They went because it was the hour of prayer. It was a place to pray. So they went there. It was okay. And they went to pray. They'd probably seen this guy many times. But on this day, it was different. And why was it different? I think it was different because everything we see in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit of God has come on them. The Spirit of God is dwelling in them. And they don't see the world like they used to see it. And God, through Christ, by his Spirit, has moved in their lives. And they see this man. And they stop and they speak to this man. In Jesus' name. And Jesus heals this man. As a believer, as a church, let's remember that our days don't belong to us any longer. They belong to our king. He's rescued us and redeemed us and forgiven us, and he has given us purpose in life, meaning in life. And so your agenda for the rest of this day might look like one thing in your journal, in your to-do list, but who knows what God has in store for you on this day? And who knows how God might want to use you on this day if you would see with his eyes, if you would hear with his ears, if you would feel with his heart, if you would reach out with his hands, if you would speak the good news of Christ, his words. Trust in him to use you that way. Let's trust him to use us that way as a church. It's what we're here for. If you're hurting this morning and your life is uh, very difficult because there's some chronic condition that you are living with and that you suffer with, there is a sustaining joy that's available to us when we know that Jesus is the one who will come and fix what is broken and heal the world and heal you. There is a day coming when you will no longer need an infusion or a prescription or another trip to the doctor's office. That day is coming. And it's an easy thing for me to say it. I'm standing on my own two feet. I have the full function of all of my limbs. It's easy for me to say that. But I do believe that God's word is true. And if you're struggling, there is joy and there is hope in the fact that Jesus is coming again and what he said in his word is true. Depend on it. Throw your life on him and keep trusting him every day, even in the midst of the struggle and the difficulties. This past week, a pastor took his own life. Any of you see that in the news on Bookface or whatever it is? And I saw that and um, it was terrible, right? And you think, how, how is it that a pastor gets to the place where they would take their own life? Uh, if you believe the statistics, there are many pastors who think about taking their own lives. They're, they are fraught through with depression and they struggle with discouragement. And this gentleman wasn't alone and he fought it. I, I want to say this to you, that if you're in the room and you're struggling with that 
and you're struggling mightily and there are dark thoughts that cloud your thinking, let me encourage you as one who has struggled on a few occasions with deep depression, do not believe what your feelings are telling you today because they are liars from start to finish. They will tell you to retreat that no one understands and there is no help to be had. Do not believe those words. They are from a very dark place. Do not retreat. Reach out. Lean in. And if I could not be cute or trite, let me say it this way. You ain't heavy. You're our brother. You're our sister. And if we need to, we will gladly, joyfully pick you up and carry you to the finish line with us until Christ comes and lifts the darkness and heals your soul. Whatever it takes, that's the kind of church we've got to be. And it's not easy. Those are easy words again to say. But when you walk alongside somebody who is suffering chronically day after day, it wears on you too. We've got to depend on one another and on the power of the Spirit to do this. All of this is because of Jesus. He is the holy and righteous one. He is the servant of God from eternity past, predicted through all of the prophets. He is the author of life. He is the center of all God has planned to do in this world. He is the one through whom our sins can be forgiven. He is the one that sends us new spiritual life, and he is the one who will fix the world. Beloved, as a people, let's worship Jesus. Let's bow the knee to Jesus. Let's take him as our king, and let's follow him faithfully to eternity. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Apostle Peter and John. Thank you that you, through faith, moved them to speak to a lame man. And on that day, for whatever reason, for your own sake, for your glory, for the sake of the name of Jesus, you healed that man who had been lame for 40 years. And you did it so that many people would come to hear once again about who Jesus is. Thank you for giving us your word today. Thank you for calling us to repentance and faith. Forgive our sins. Help us to walk with you, to be your people in this world, magnifying Jesus' name. We pray it in his name. Amen. Hey, let's stand together. We're gonna